Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Hello, my high-vibing friends. I am so excited you're here today and as always have an awesome guest to introduce you today. So today we're going to be talking with Ernest Vecchio. I'm sorry, Ernie Vecchio. Um, He's assisting others to heal from severe adversity, author, trauma psychologist, and mentor. He has spent his career understanding the human psyche and its its response to suffering. Upon removing the ego's interference, his clients describe it as being able to see in the dark. Ernie's work offers evidence that our shared inner journeys have a common theme and one that places us along a human spectrum. Uh, we brought, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, when brought into our awareness, the insights provided offer context and a deeper meaning to being human. No longer working in a hospital setting, Ernie has harvested from himself and his patients every ounce of blood, sweat, and tears a person could possibly experience. Today, he has synthesized this material into life-changing wisdom. In his most recent books, Feeling and Reason, Activating Your Heart as Compass Despite the Ego's Interference, he explains, in our push to be and pull to, to become, many of us forget the soul's intent to liberate our fullest expression. Welcome, Ernie. Hey, great. For, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I apologize for stumbling over, but that's all right. We're imperfect. Also, no <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a very impressive um, intro. You, I'm excited. I'm really excited to have you on and excited to kind of dive in. So we'll just start by, I know I just read your bio, but um, tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Well, I started out like yourself. I'm a, you know, I was a therapist and mm-hmm. then I went off and became a psychologist uh, later on in my life. And Started working really with hardcore street kids from New York and DC, although I was in Ohio at the time. And, um, and then I kind of fell into working with people with trauma uh, at a local, at a local rehab hospital. And then, and then it just kind of moved my way up the ladder and became the, the lead psychologist of that, of that hospital by the time I left. And, um, with really no plan to find what I found out. Uh, and what in terms of connecting the dots of the human condition, mm-hmm. uh, that was not my intent. And you know, this is a counselor when you have a when you have somebody come in with a problem, you you've got to pull out your toolkit, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. In counseling psychology, we call that theory, but certainly it's the the application of those ideas and concepts that are a challenge when you're working with head trauma and you're working with uh, low IQs or people that have been paralyzed or amputated they're they're in a pretty traumatic place and so the abc approach to problem solving you know just isn't going to work and mm-hmm. uh, and so i i had to kind of dive in uh, i've said before like indiana jones um into the psyche of these people and i had them for 12 to 14 months at a time uh as they were going through recovery and and, it, and then lo and behold years later on training psychologists and therapists because of what I learned about the process. And so it's, it's been an interesting journey for sure. Yeah. I I love that. I think that, um, 
that's one thing you definitely don't touch a whole lot in in school <laughs> um, to mm. become a therapist is, you know, different from the ABC approach. When you do have clients that, um, you know, are coming from, like you mentioned, these different um, walks of life. And um, so I really like that you kind of dove in and not only kind of enhanced the professional education, but also really kind of let your clients do the guiding in um you know, what, what they were there to teach you. I always think my, my clients teach me way more than I ever learned in school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like there was a period in my career where I kind of crossed over mm -hmm. and, uh, and I really couldn't tell you what I was doing before the cross. Uh, I mean, I, I was doing one thing before, which was the application of theory and whatever. Mm -hmm. Of course I did all kinds of models and I used a lot of three-dimensional, uh, teaching, you know, strategies to teach these models and concepts. And then, and then all of a sudden, it seemed like that um, my patients were saying to me, I don't know what you did, but I feel better. And it turned out that it was where I was in my own inner work mm. is I was accompanying them and theirs mm -hmm. that, was, that was kind of altering them. So it was, uh, and so I really moved from uh, all this cognitive stuff more into, into what I would call healing and transformation. And, uh, and then I began to see the theme uh, that, you know, on the inside, we're really pretty much all the same. We're all fighting the same demons at some level, and we're all undergoing the same traumas. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, you've heard before that we're either a, a human being having spiritual experiences or a spiritual person having human experiences. Yep. Well, what, I, what I've learned in working with trauma is that we are not either or of those things. We are both of those things. And mm. the technical term for that is psycho-spiritual. And yeah. so the premise of my work is we come into the world kind of whole and, and live under the illusion of the separation and then get divided by guilt and shame later on in life. And then we merge those two events as one event, separation mm -hmm. and division. And, uh, and so what, what I ended up dealing with trauma is that, you know, the ego is cut away. I mean, it's totally dissolved when you are traumatized at the level these patients were. And so where we're trained as therapists and counselors to do, to do ego work, uh, you know, it was so much deeper than that. And so it, it, it turned into words like soul and spirit. And it was not religious. It literally was uh, what those two words imply, right? And so, mm -hmm. so yeah, it was it was a huge deal. And, uh, and so then I ended up developing a whole philosophy and a whole theory and therapy around it. Um, and it's, it's quite profound work. Absolutely. Yeah, what is the um, kind of title of your theory? I'm just curious. Intentional guided evolution Intentional. Uh, is the name of the theory, and it doesn't exist in the mainstream. It only exists in my life and my little world. But what I discovered as I was dealing with these patients is, is that uh, something inside of them was intentionally guiding them to evolve mm. beyond ego. And what they all would end up saying is, if I'm, you know, if I'm not these legs, then what am I? If I'm not this spinal cord, what am I? If I'm not this body, what am I? And of course, what you end up beginning to find out is that you're more than that. Mm -hmm. And they tend to frame that in their vocations uh, as they had to lose those vocations and switch to something else. They had to reinvent who they were. And um, so, yeah, it was it was profound. Yeah, I it is profound. Just hearing about it, I'm like listening to you and I'm like, yeah, wow, this is this is really powerful. I think um, you know, this is what drew me to kind of 
make the shift in a sense too of kind of combining some of the traditional therapy tools and techniques that can be helpful, but also bring it into that holistic space because, um, you know, we are these beings that do have, we survive and we live in so many different spaces and ways, right? There's so much to um, our life, which is kind of what you're, what you're touching on. So I want to ask you specifically, though, um, you mentioned kind of ego. um, And I'm curious, kind of, if you could talk more about like ego states and kind of that aspect of of self. Well, what what I would encourage the people do that are that are that are hearing this is to grab a scratch piece of paper and a pen. And and because I came up with this, you know, probably 20, 30 years ago, but it still applies today, is to draw a candle and then draw a circle around that candle and realize that a candle needs 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 oxygen to burn in a closed container. The candle is symbolic of your spark to life. You know, your heart's beating, your brain's firing, but you don't have an extension board sticking out your back or a battery pack, right? Mm-hmm. That's what that was symbolic of. And the circle is the physical body. Now, uh, what I want you to do is draw arrows, put an arrow uh, up at the left-hand corner and right-hand corner at the bottom uh, left and right as well, coming at that circle. And, uh, and so that would be life coming at you from all sides. And then the next step would be to draw circles around the original circle, almost like rings of a tree. Well, uh, and then imagine what you've drawn there is 30 layers between you and the and the candle. Well, those layers are ego. Mm. And each individual ring is representative of a, of, of a year of experience of your life. What I if you come in off the street because you you've you're going through a divorce or uh um you're, you've lost your job or something like that, you might let me get down one or two layers, which doesn't really impact that candle. But if you had your legs amputated, if your spinal cord's ripped out, all 30 of those imaginary layers are cut through and the oxygen rushes that candle. It doesn't blow it out because that would be physical death. What it does is it soars. And every emotion you can imagine, fear, anger, disgust, loss, all of those things are are there, and then the candle will subside. I witnessed, uh, Caitlin, that about 26 of those 30 layers fell away just because of the trauma. And for the first time in that person's life, that candle was closer to the outside world than it had been, than, than it had been since it was born. Mm. So in that in that example, uh, our function as human beings then is to get that material out of the way and leave it over like somebody else's candle. So that that philosophy is really the whole premise of intentional guided evolution is uh, that uh, that that intelligence that I'm referring to is coming from that candle, uh, from the soul and spirit of who you are. And um and your feelings are essentially your your spiritual self, and your emotions are thoughts and feelings combined that create those layers. And um, I, you know, you you had uh, when you reached out to me, you said you were interested in knowing the difference between feelings and emotions. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is my bias, but it certainly has been my experience too. That feelings are a reaction to a present tense moment, where emotions are a reenactment of a previous experience. And Mm -hmm. so what we end up doing is reenacting our lives until we get to a place of just reacting. And that would be presence. Um, And so that distinction between feeling and emoting becomes very pronounced when you are traumatized at the level these patients were. Mm -hmm. Uh, They weren't just emoting 
because their entire past and pathology was coming through from the trauma, they were feeling their way through. And it was, and that's the Indiana Jones part. You know, think of a blind person that goes into a room for the first time with a walking stick. They literally will take the cane and they'll find where the chair is and where the couch is and where the desk is and where the lamp is. And they'll memorize those things. And then and then the next time they come into that room, they they move around as if they've been there all their lives. Well, what the ego does is move the furniture around. And so the next time you come in, you bump into something. And that is what the ego does all the time. And so the the human spirit's job is to provoke the ego to reenact this material so you can dissolve one of those layers. And so, you know, one of my patients, well, not one of my patients, all my patients at some point said to me, did I have to have a tree fall on me to figure this out? And I said, yeah, kind of so, because the ego is that stubborn. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, is that stubborn? Yeah. If that made any sense, I hope that makes sense. It made perfect sense. Yeah, that was a great analogy. And I, I think it answered perfectly. Um, I think I really was curious, you know, I think we hear and we use those terms and those words of feeling and emotion very um, interchangeably, and they are very different. Um, and so I really like how you kind of described that to a, a really beautiful way to describe it. So thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and what has well, I was I was going to say what has changed uh, when I first entered this profession. Uh, how you think uh, how you think is how you feel was on one was one school of thought, and then the other school of thought is what you believe you become right down to the cells of who you are. The distance between those two schools of thought was not very far. So if you if you held your hand out, it was a couple inches apart. Mm-hmm. And you you essentially, as a therapist, were learning how to build a bridge between those two schools of thought, and that would be transformation and healing. But what has happened over time is that that gap has grown, has grown much, much larger, so much so that now uh, professionals are forced to choose a side, and we've fallen down the side of how you think is how you feel. And so what you believe you become is kind of lost, and, and that's what trauma kind of aggravates and brings to the surface uh, what you your belief system is absolutely destroyed when you are going through that kind of trauma you've got mm-hmm. to literally reinvent yourself which means you have to let go of a lot of beliefs and you're not doing it through abc you know the ret approach you're not doing that <laughs> it's it's happening just by just by catharsis just simply by the melting away of ego and uh, and and then once you get up on monday the world looks different simply because you can't go back. You can't unsee what you've seen once you've been present. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people that have been traumatized are quite present, uh, at least for a while before mm-hmm. they go back inside. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a beautiful you know, way to say it. And I think you also touched on a really big um, piece of, you know, why I started kind of exploring holistic, um, just kind of the holistic way in general, because of that piece of where it's, you know, you're in school and it's like, all right, pick your clinical orientation is that, you know, you're kind of, as you're talking about it, I'm like, oh, yep, here's these theories. Instead of, like you said, having that more eclectic approach of belief that humans actually can function in multiple different ways and do, it's not a one size fits all of like you were kind of talking about of either, you know, the thoughts or, or the feelings or one or the other. Well, yeah. And when we use, you know, they used to say that we use a small part of our brain. Mm-hmm. You know, that 
the human beings only use a small part. Most folks don't know what part that is. It's typically the left hemisphere of the brain because that's where the ego resides. Well, now we know there's two other brains. <laughs> so, so the one in your heart and mm-hmm. the one in your stomach. And so you literally have three brains. So the goal in, in depth work, uh, which is the kind of work I do, internal work, is to become whole brain. It's developmental, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you're supposed to be whole brain by the time you hit, mid, uh, hit midlife, at least. Uh, and then at that midlife time, if not sooner, you are then accessing the heart and the stomach, which means you're out of your head and you're in your body. So, so those three brains are supposed to be working in unison with one another. And they, they have a symbiotic relationship, if you will, not an oppositional one. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and so the symbiosis is literally what we have uh, uh, gotten away from with all the cognitive behavioral stuff that we're doing. We're moved away. We're we're just in the brain. We're just in the head with all of this. Right. And given and, and given all the the kudos to neuroscience for what they're figuring out, and 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 that's all well and good. But the uh, the gold standard before that happened used to be the unconscious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and all the material that's gone on, you know, uh, that needs to be dug out and cultivated. And, and again, people don't walk into that voluntarily, which is the beauty of trauma. Uh, you don't have a choice. If you're traumatized, you have to deal with this material. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to this idea of ego, because you touched on of like, you know, the, the left part of your brain is where the ego hangs out. What are the kind of natural resting states of ego and the heart? Since we've talked about two of the brains. Yeah, that's that's really a, a great question because the natural state people don't realize this of the human ego is anxious. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's the natural state. It has, and and the reason why is because it's either focused on the past or it's worried about the future, and it has trouble being in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And so, its natural state is that anxiety about the past and future. Uh, uh, the heart's natural state is idling, and you know this simply by pulse rate. So again, those two things, uh, you know, are not in opposition. They're, they're, they're intended to be symbiotically related. So the, the feeling kind of part of the self provokes the ego to reenact material. Uh, and then the heart points the way. If not, then the ego is the compass. And that is really where we are. I mean, uh, if you ask people today to point on their body where the human compass is, a very large percentage point to their head. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's, that's why you and I have a job. Uh, mm-hmm. is because, <laughs> because of that. Well, isn't that ironic when when we are when we know that the human compass is the heart, right? And and now imagine what we've done is projected that onto the the collective idea of the human experience. So we've made the ego, uh, the default compass just by design. And it's, uh, it's a problem. And it was the epidemic before the epidemic hit. I mean, the (laughs) last book I wrote was really about how ego dysfunction had taken over the culture, really had taken over the planet, but certainly the culture. And then boom, the pandemic hit and all that disorder just came to the surface. Uh, and, And it was, yeah, very profound. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting as I'm hearing you kind of talk about this idea of, you know, like you said, it's the reason we have a job of pointing to the head as the compass rather than the heart. Um, 
it's funny, you know, I, I do independent contracting for counseling too. And my um, employer there had us do the Meyer Briggs uh, personality test today. And, um, you know, just to look at how we're functioning as a corporation, all these different things. And that is one of the questions on there of, you know, are you guided more by your head or by your heart? Um, and it's kind of an interesting question, like you said, because so many people go to that, well, I should be thinking, you know, more logically and follow my logical brain rather than my feelings because feelings aren't fact. And I think that you just really pointed out the problem of that. <laughs> yeah. And if you could imagine that, that, that you're in a boat and the front of the boat is where the ego resides. Uh, and the rear of the boat is the rudder, which is where the heart resides. And the heart is you know, is going to determine the direction. So you have to be oriented, you know, in the right direction. And so if the collective ego is considered to be the compass, then you have ego attracting to ego. In other words, it's like a magnet. If you put two ends that are the, that are the same, they, they attract. Mm -hmm. So you have the personal ego being drawn towards the collective ego and the heart is being dragged along. It's not serving as a rudder. If you make the heart yeah, on the horizon, if you will. And then, then the opposites are there. And then the opposites uh, attract, uh, repel. And in that regard, the ego can, or the heart can then steer the boat. So that's, that's a huge problem. If, if you want a, a real life experience of that, it's Galileo. Galileo found out that the, that the sun was the center of the solar system. I want to say 16, 1700s. Mm -hmm. And he died in isolation, and the Catholic Church did not pencil that into truth until 77 years later. Well, now imagine that we're in the same place, and we've put the ego where the sun resides, and the heart is rotating around the ego, when it should be the heart where the sun resides in the reverse. You see what I mean? Yep, so, I yeah. And so that, that's a huge deal, and that's really what I call spiritual gravity, um, and it's, it's, it's a huge problem, and it's and it's hiding in plain sight. I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've witnessed this kind of get worse over the years, but yeah, it's, it's kind of hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that, that term spiritual gravity. So how do people apply this to kind of their daily life? Well, the formula for spiritual gravity is E squared minus HC equals uh, S to the 10th power, which means <laughs> a magnified uh, or exaggerated ego minus the hardest compass equals suffering tenfold. Mm. Uh, that is what that formula is symbolic of. And it and so, so clearly if the heart is the center, then, then that 10th power is reduced. Uh, and, and so the whole premise is, is that we have by default made the ego, the default compass uh, in our personal and collective lives at such a level that we are more divided than we've ever been because of it. And um, I don't know how how much experience you have working with ego problems and dysfunction, but only three to five percent of personality disorders are rehabilitated. Um, the reason why you would think is because it's that hard of a nut to crack. But the truth is not that many professionals know how to treat personality disorder. Mm -hmm. It's a combination of both. Uh, it, it isn't just it's a difficult thing to treat. You have a lot of professionals have no idea how to approach it. Well, guess what? If I cut off your legs, guess what happens to your disorder? It collapses. Right. It absolutely collapses and it no longer works. 
And so you have to reinvent some sense of I and me uh, that is totally different than the one you had when you went in. So it's, yeah, if that makes sense. It did. Yeah. And I think I, I really like that you pointed that out with the personality disorder, because I think that, um, like you pointed out, it's very easy for people to write it off as, oh, they're just not able to be rehabilitated or, oh, you know, they're just a narcissist or they, you know, have borderline personality disorder. And we write it off a lot in society, but I think you're, what you hit on is completely true. There's just, yes, it's difficult to work with personality disorders, but at the same time, there's really an appropriate way um, to be able to help people that are struggling. It's blind blind, unfortunately, you know, uh, that, that ego dysfunction uh, is now considered the new normal. Mm Mm-hmm. As is PTSD. Yeah. You know, uh, a, a lot of insurance companies are saying now, if everybody has it, nobody has it. I think that started with, uh, uh, well, I think it was most obvious in the Katrina event that, uh, that, it, that insurance companies did not pay. There were so many PTSD cases, they just stopped mm-hmm. paying. So, so it, 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 it kind of got to this idea that, that the new norm is essentially a lie, <laughs> yeah. which is your ego, your ego isn't, uh, it, it isn't who you are. It certainly isn't. I'm sorry. It's who you are, but it isn't what you are. And uh, and that's another piece of the book is, is that, you know, I I answer all five questions, who, when, where, what and why you are. And I and I propose in the book that we spend so much time on who, when and where at the expense of what and why. Mm. And uh, and and what we are essentially is our, our feeling, sensing, experiential beings kind of forced to live in a psychological reality and why we are is to have a reciprocal relationship with this experience with ourselves and with others anything less than that would be parasitical so so that's huge to get and as you can under as you can see that's also a quite spiritual understanding of it um, mm-hmm. that that to have a reciprocal relationship with yourself and others is uh means you have to be able to uh, put the psychology of who you are out of the way or get it out of the way to be able to connect. Absolutely. And, and the, yeah. And the pandemic revealed just where we were on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, oh, it absolutely did. Yeah. It cracked that wide open. <laughs> it really um, did. It, yeah, yeah. People, people were, were, um, I think indifferent towards one another, uh, in this country before it hit. And then they were entitled with their indifference after it hit. So it was just mm-hmm. really, uh, kind of interesting phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, like that you touched on that piece of, you know, kind of why this applies and how it, how it does apply. Because, um, I had that conversation, actually kind of the spiritual piece of the conversation with the client last night, um, which is funny that we're talking today, the universe works in, in beautiful ways. Um, but you know, this idea of letting go of the kind of who, what, why, you know, or who, what, where to talk about that, why, and that, what, because, we do get so wrapped up in kind of these tangible societal goals and how we look and, you know, all these different things, but we forget about the parts that matter of the connection piece of the community piece of the experience piece. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, the shift of the session that we were talking about in this piece that really does need to be talked about and looked into. Yeah. And the ego states, I don't know if I answered your question, uh, is I discovered uh, of course, you probably have heard of TA, mm-hmm. which is Eric Burns model of uh, what's the transactional analysis. Yep. Well, uh, there's uh, this predates uh, 
this idea of ego states predates that by almost a thousand years. I mean, <laughs> the ego state concept is that we have four ego states, uh, which is a, uh, a, uh, a counselor, critic, mediator, and bully. Mm. And, and if you can imagine, I don't know if you remember those, those old uh, toys where you used to have a, a round uh, film strip that would sit inside and slide a viewfinder where you would slide it with a click. Uh, you'd look through the oh, lens. I think, and yeah, slide. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it's a viewfinder. Well, imagine that the 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 critic and the bully is looking at that from uh, from the head's position, from the ego's position, and the mediator and the counselor is looking at that from the heart position. And so, mm-hmm. and so you have to ask what's holding what's holding the viewfinder. You see, and that would be the observer. Mm-hmm. And so the observer, uh, which is the which is the eye observing the eye, which is E Y E observing the eye, which is the ego, uh, is a lost art in this culture right now. I mean, uh, I mean, I I teach people how to do this, and I talk about it all the time. Uh, and we've written so many books about presence. I mean, uh, I think Eckhart Tolle wrote the book um, The Power of Now. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody was wowed by that. And the book went, you know, went mainstream and whatever. But that book was written by Ram Dost in 1960, I think. It's called Be Here Now. So it was just repackaged something that had already been said, which is, you know, presence and being in this moment <laughs> is the only single is the only single thing we have any control over. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and but it's being sold like like we sell water in a bottle. It's that kind of a thing. And, mm-hmm. and so that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm saying it's kind of hiding in plain sight. Traumatic uh, yeah. people that are traumatized feel when they go out into the world, uh, this is certainly true of amputees and people that are paralyzed, that the whole world is staring at them. Mm-hmm. And, and really and really what they are is just hyper vigilant, hyper aware, and very, very present. Yeah. And nobody's staring at all. Right. Oh, there, may be, there may be somebody, but not as many people as they imagine. Right. And so that's that's the point is, is this, um, uh, you know, this road less travel, which is the inward journey is, uh, it, it is now is a lost art. It's, it's a, I mean, I'm so and I'm glad that you that you reached out to me to talk about it because it needs to be talked about more. Mm-hmm. It does. And I, you know, I think we see that a little bit more on the counseling side because we're, you know, helping people do this work. But I really liked going back to that piece of, um, you know, the natural resting state of ego as being anxious. And I think that that word bugs me now, just because of how often, like you said, I have clients every single day tell me when they show up to sessions, I'm anxious. And it makes a lot of sense, right? But we also have this kind of way to start processing and feeling and changing, like you're talking about to the, instead of that focus of, you know, the the future and the past and where anxiety really comes from of that future tripping um, to go back to this place of like, you're talking about kind of the here and now, which is a concept that has been around, like you mentioned for thousands and thousands of years. (laughs) Well, and, and the cool thing about anxiety is the, uh, we've forgotten there's a childhood story that handles it very well. And it's called the three little pigs. The straw to sticks to bricks analogy in the three little pigs is mm-hmm. is developmentally moving uh, uh, 
you know, fear in this in that concept is a motivator because it's behind you. If you're looking over your shoulder, you're going to run right past those three houses. So you have to have your eyes forward and the wolf is moving you from straw to sticks to bricks. And people don't realize that that developmental uh, process is normal and it's something we all need to go through. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, and we've also forgotten that at, in the very last house, the pigs negotiate with the wolf because he because he can't get in the brick house. He says, "What are you doing tomorrow?" And he says, "Well, I'm I'm going to go pick some apples." And he says, "What time are you going?" And he says, well, "About about six a.m. or something like that." So they end up going at five a.m. and he gets there and he's angry. And you know, I thought you were coming at six. He says, "Well, we got a head start." So that it's it's giving you the therapy. It's telling you to be one step ahead of fear. Fear is a motivator. Keep your eyes forward, and you'll move through those three developmental stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so many people live in a straw and sticks you know kind of existence and don't realize that that is developmental and uh yeah fear is there to motivate us it's not there to take us out Mm, i like that yeah i and you you mentioned this concept of normal earlier on and i know we're getting tight on time so i want to ask you what do you feel like is a valid definition of the word normal well and i appreciate that because when i was first uh, talking about that at a workshop uh everybody got really uncomfortable that i thought i knew what normal was and and (laughs) Somebody in the audience said it was a, a bit, it, it was a setting on a dryer, and everybody laughed. And then somebody, <laughs> said the, it was the normal portion of the bell curve, and 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 I said, and I and I think I took a poll before I answered the question how many years people had been in the field, and it was anywhere from ten to twenty some odd years in the room. So there was a lot of experience in that room, mm-hmm. and they said, "Well, what do you think? You know what it is?" And I said, "Yeah, when your inside world is congruent with your outside world, not the reverse." And so, mm-hmm. and so, this internal uh, congruence is those four pieces: soul, spirit, ego, and heart, working as a navigational whole. Uh, uh, that is that is the balance that we all talk about. Uh, if you have that internally, then the outside world uh, is not, go- it doesn't matter where it is. But if you're looking at the outside world for normal, which is right job, right spouse, right location, right amount of money, if you keep it all in the external and, and then try to align your insides with that, it doesn't work. It's right. an inside it's an inside out process. And so that concept of congruence is huge. And, um, and again, it's a lost art and it's not something we teach anymore or talk about enough, uh, uh about this inside, you know, ability to, uh, pay attention to our own internal guidance. Right. Yeah. I, it's definitely that kind of concept of the internal creates your external, um, which That's I, okay. yeah. I love that. Um, and I want to ask one more question. Um, I saw this term of the, I, I don't know if it, I think it was the humane spectrum. Um, yeah. And I want to ask, what is that? Yeah, what I discovered is, is that uh, I found a way to evaluate uh, where people are uh, on, on this spectrum, which is a, uh, first, it's kind of the cognitive stuff if they're right hemisphere, left hemisphere, or if they're whole brain in terms of how they perceive and receive and manipulate their world, you know, cognitively, but also um, internally, if they're connected to this, uh, to this compass, and to this, and, and to their own intuition. So I have a way to evaluate that, and then can can tell at the end of that evaluation, where somebody is on that spectrum. And it has to do with benevolence, it has to do with, um, 
uh, this concept of compassion, which is a real piece I needed to add here on this because uh, it's huge, is, is that a very large percentage of the people I work with in the hospital, all different races, cultures, genders, uh, define compassion as suffering for another human being when the definition is actually suffering with another human being. Mm-hmm. So for versus with, which yeah. is only being off of one click on a compass is, you know, the further you get away from the starting point, the, the more lost you are. Mm-hmm. That was so huge as people who knew how to suffer with themselves and with others uh, were transformative. Those people who suffered for uh, were stuck in the concept of victimization. And now, and, and, and that's where we are. I mean, uh, try that on one of your, uh, on your, on your clients, just ask them to define compassion and you will find that many of them define it as martyrdom and sacrifice. And that is not the definition of compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so the people that w- that were rehabilitated uh, or that took the longest to rehabilitate were those who define compassion that way. Wow. Yeah, that is powerful too. It makes you definitely makes you think. Um, and I am, I am going to try that. I'm going to ask some of my clients that that would fit appropriately for, um, yeah, yeah. What, what their definition of compassion is. Yeah. So, so, so the short answer is I take the intellect of the individual, right brain, left brain. I take into, I have a, a way to look at intuition, uh, where their compass is, uh, where they are in terms of their feeling and emoting stuff. And I, I just have all that in one integrative way to then can place them on a spectrum. And again, it's, it's looking at how, uh, how they handle compassion, whether or not they're in reciprocal relationship with themselves and others. And that's, that's, and that's what we find out in this business of humane spectrum. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to think we live in a humane universe and, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and in humaneness, you, you would think would not have to be taught, but we're not very kind to ourselves generally. So it does kind of have to be taught. Yeah. Absolutely. It does. Well, Ernie, thank you so much. I feel like this was such a interesting conversation. I feel like I keep asking you so many questions. Yeah, uh, please your... have me back because yeah, we need to have this more. <laughs> I absolutely. I agree. No, I would love to. Um, well, and thank you to our listeners. I know it. Um, your time is valuable, so I appreciate you coming on. As always, subscribe, rate, and review. Let us know what you thought, um, and I will talk to you guys next time. Bye, guys. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.